This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Monday is red and Tuesday is definitely green. Notes on the musical scale have colors. A below middle C is blue. B flat is magenta. B is purple. C is yellow. D is red. E is blue. F is green. And G is orange. And tastes are also connected to tactile sensations. Some savory and salty flavors have what I experience on my tongue as points, like pressure against a stiff brush. I sometimes can use this sense in cooking to season a dish or to get to a certain level of a charred flavor. That's 1A listener Robert in Miami. He's describing his experience with synesthesia. That's when senses like taste and vision or vision and hearing cross over and affect each other. Our five senses shape how we understand the world, but everyone experiences those senses differently. Some of us are super sensors with abilities beyond the norm. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Today is all about the amazing science of the census. We'll meet super sensors and synesthetes, including more of you. It's all after the break. Stay with us. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Let's meet our first super sensor. Joy Milne has hyperosmia, or an enhanced sense of smell. She's an honorary lecturer of olfaction at the University of Manchester. She joins us from Perth, Scotland. Joy, welcome to 1A. Hello. Pleased to be here. Joy, your extraordinary nose led to a scientific breakthrough. Your ability to smell Parkinson's helped develop a non-invasive test for the disease. Let's start at the beginning of the story. Twelve years before your late husband, Les, was diagnosed with Parkinson's, you noticed something different about him, his smell. What happened? He came, he was a consultant anesthetist, and I just thought it was connected with something in the closed environment of um, anesthesia in theatres. Uh, But then he began to change. He was a little bit different in temperament. He was tired. He he would be touchy. And and as these things happened, the smell got worse. And I was saying he wasn't showering enough or he wasn't brushing his teeth well enough. And and he became quite upset about it all, as you can imagine. What was the new smell like? It was a... Not a very nice, uh, deep, musky smell. When did you realize, and when did Les realize, that that strange new scent was linked with his Parkinson's diagnosis? Uh, He had to uh, uh, retire when he was 50 from anesthetics uh, because of his Parkinson's, and we decided to go back home. We were living down in England, but we were both brought up in Dundee in Scotland. And we came home, got a house in Perth, and we went to the first Perth Parkinson's UK uh, meeting. And I walked into the room, breathed, as I have to, 
walked out of the room, went into the bathroom and sort of said to myself, well, what am I going to do now? I uh, went back in and by the time we left, I could differentiate in that quite big room, about uh, 45 people, I could tell who had Parkinson's and who didn't. I'm trying to imagine what that moment was like for you to realize that's that's the scent. That was the scent I picked up on less. What was going on inside of your head when you finally realized that's what you were smelling? Well, when I was six and a half, I came storming into my grandmother's kitchen going, my friends smell, they really smell. And she said, no, no, you can't do that. I've got a story to tell you. And it is hereditary hyperosmia. My great-great-grandmother had it. My grandmother had it. Um, and they trained going down the line. And she said, don't worry, I'll, I'll sort it out. But her one word, her one sentence was, which changed me, you must not tell anybody about it. And, and what was she concerned about? Why did she tell you not to share that information? Uh, the stigma, I presume. I presume in the past, not only herself, but her mother and her grandmother, had they'd uh, come across the stigma of being able to smell everything and anything. Well, your, your <laughs> nose eventually led you to helping uh, develop a new non-invasive test for Parkinson's. How did that work begin? Um, I, my husband, rightly as an anesthetist, he decreed uh, from the very beginning, we had to find the right person to speak to. And uh, Professor Tilo Kunas, he was doing a lecture on stem cell research in Parkinson's in the MRC in a Little France in Edinburgh. So I attended it uh, with the Edinburgh Research Group. I stood up at the end and asked the question, why are we not using the smell of Parkinson's to diagnose it earlier? And I assure you, the room went totally silent. <laughs> I, that, that's just fascinating to me because I'm sure before you <laughs> that it never even come up as, as an option. What did you discover about what your nose is detecting when you smell Parkinson's? Well, um, we were then went to Professor Pedita Barn in Manchester and she uh, uses GCMS, LCMS and TDGCMS, which is all to do with testing. Um, we've used it for 60 years in America, all over the world, actually, for testing children with a little heel prick for um, diseases that you know, can't be discovered until they're older and would, in actual fact, help uh, damage their health. So it's not something that's new. Um, it's the volatiles. And we have now discovered there are a set of molecules that and, and volatiles that can be biomarkers for Parkinson's disease. And by volatiles, you mean? Smell. Smell. The actual uh, molecules that make a smell. Now, I, I want to be clear, the researcher you worked with tested the accuracy of your ability to smell Parkinson's. How did, how did they test that? Yes, uh, Tilo, um, there were 12 um, people that were uh, control and 12 people that were people with Parkinson's. And uh, they asked them to wear T-shirts. They'd they separated me from people because that was obvious. I could tell what a person who had Parkinson's, what would happen as they moved, etc. So they wore the T-shirts for 24 hours. 
I had already said the smell was more at the back of the neck than anywhere else on the body. So they cut out the back of the uh, neck of the T-shirts and then they cut them in half to make it even more difficult. So I added even more T-shirt parts. But um, I got them all right except one. But I said then, no, that person is the highest um, level uh, of volatiles that I'm smelling. He was undiagnosed. Seven months later, he came back. They could do nothing, say nothing to him then because it wasn't proven. Mm -hmm. So he came back seven months later and said, what did she say about my T-shirt? I've just been diagnosed. Wow. So I pre-diagnosed somebody in the proof of concept. Carrie in Virginia emails us, I have always felt like my sense of smell was not normal. I once found my mother in a grocery store by scent when she began showing signs of dementia and had wandered off. I taught for 28 years and I could smell strep infection in children. Call me crazy, but maybe not. After a quick break, we have more questions for Joy, and we talk to another super sensor who's a tetrachromat. While most of us see about one million colors, tetrachromats may see as many as 100 million. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. On NPR's Throughline... We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation by adding a new voice. Maureen Seberg joins us from New York City. She's the author of the new book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, The Astonishing New Science of the Census. She has synesthesia and is also a tetrachromat, meaning she can distinguish more colors than average. Hi, Maureen. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you. Maureen, as I said, you're a tetrachromat, meaning you see more colors than, than most of us. You also have synesthesia, where senses overlap. How did you figure out your vision is different than most people's? My entire life, I had polite disagreements with people about the colors of things. It, I like to joke that it was like living the what color is the dress internet flame war huh. every day. And um, people would just speak in terms that were too general about color, like something that was red to them would be maroon to me. Or something that was blue would be ultramarine to me. And finally, I stumbled on the Radio Lab podcast about tetrachromacy one day and learned about the trait and contacted one of the researchers on the show who uh, questioned me and then sent a DNA test to get the ball rolling. And why DNA? 
Well, there is a genetic basis for this. However, it's a really good question you raise. One can have the genes for tetrachromacy, and it's always women. It requires two X chromosomes at this point in history, although at least one doctor thinks it will one day spread to the entire population because it's advantageous. Um, But your genes may not be functional. So just like we can carry the genes for both blue and brown eyes, but only one will be expressed, a woman can carry the genes for tetrachromacy and they may not be functional. So I have subsequently gone through functionality testing two rounds of it at Arizona State University. Joy, and I am functional. You are functional. Joy, what do we know about why people like yourself have hyperosmia? What's, what's happening in your body that's different than, than most of us? Well, my two sisters have it also, um, but they didn't do nursing. So what I collected, we all have an olfactory library. I collect, have collected an olfactory library of disease. Mm. Um, and, you know, everybody can uh, um, recognize a lemon or an apple or, or, or something like that. But mine is for diseases. M- Maureen, so you said there's this genetic component and we're, and we're hearing something similar with joy. But does that translate into your eyes being structured differently or your brain being structured or processing information differently? What do we know? I think both. Um, So my eyes, uh, there's a difference in my retinas. I have four cone classes for color vision as opposed to the normal three, which gives me exponentially more real estate devoted to color. In addition, the doctors say, were it not for my large vocabulary for color, I'm a very verbal person, I'm a writer, and uh, very verbal. If I didn't know the words for colors, the genes might also not have become functional. Hmm. We got this question from Kate in Indiana who says, I wonder about the connection between acute sense of smell and migraines and if they are related in terms of brain function. I have both and smells are definitely a migraine trigger. I was able to detect my husband's Hodgkin's lymphoma before he was diagnosed by doctors because he began to smell the way he did when he had mononucleosis. Joy, in your experience, is there a link between the smells you detect or perhaps the intensity of the smells and a physical reaction like a migraine? Well, I smell diseases in four different levels and have done so from the very beginning. Um, I can tell, I could tell personally the progression of a disease. However, at Manchester, we have now solved the problem of how this is happening and they can look at the progression of disease. So, it is interesting to, for me, if it is a one, I'm perfectly right, I have a faint sensation into my cheeks and my ears, but if I smell a disease at level four, my ears are screaming, I have pain in the roof of my mouth. And so, yes, if you have a migraine, it must be doing the same. It's, it's fascinating because I'm thinking back to my childhood and the smell of spearmint, 
just the smell of it would trigger a migraine when I was a child. And, and that has since dulled into adulthood. But even now, it makes me feel a little queasy to, to smell it. Maureen, we heard from Joy already that you know, while you have this ability, Joy hit it and, and even felt some shame about the enhanced sense. What was that like for you? With the synesthesia, I did stop talking about it sometime in childhood because uh, a synesthesia just wasn't talked about then. It really wasn't um, legitimized until the 1980s when doctors Larry Marks and Richard Saitoic put synesthetes in brain scan machines and proved it was real. So there were no role models for me. It was not cool with people like Pharrell Williams and Mary J. Blige and Billie Eilish all talking about it. Um, So I learned to be silent. It seemed a little odd to people who didn't have it. But then when I was 23 years old, uh, I walked into a bookstore where Dr. Saitowicz's book, The Man Who Tasted Shapes, was on a front table, and it was all about this, and it really opened up my eyes. And then tetrachromacy, again, uh, comparing it to the what color is the dress debate, you know where that goes, and it's uh, it's almost uh, not worth it to bring up a disagreement in color because people feel very strongly about their own perceptions, don't they? Mm-hmm. Joy, your husband, Les, died in 2015. What was his understanding of and hope for your work and research before he died? On his deathbed, he was, he was very ill for three days before he died. And uh, we discussed it. We talked about it. And he made me promise. He said, you must do this. He realized as a, a doctor that this could help people. And he had... He had had the signs and symptoms for 10, 12 years before, but didn't know that he could have had some help. And I think it would have helped the family as well uh, to see the changes in my husband. And, you know, it was difficult manage-wise with how he was changing. And that it would help everybody if we could do it. And he was quite adamant about it before he died. Well, Tamara in Minnesota also wants to weigh in. I have always seen notes in colors, too. I didn't know it was a thing. Uh, Anyways, I would like to know how I can get tested for that. So, Maureen, you were tested for tetrachromacy and synesthesia. You mentioned a DNA test. What else had to happen? At Arizona State University, a team led by Christopher Jake Patton and including Nobel Prize winning physicist Frank Wilczek gave me tests on the computer. Um, I'm not allowed to describe their proprietary method yet. It will be released and it will be more widely available to discover more women with this trait. But I passed two rounds of this and a control group of non-tetrachromats did not. And as far as synesthesia, uh, your your caller seemed to want to know about testing. She can go online and look 
for something developed by the great neuroscientist David Eagleman called the synesthesia battery. And it allows someone to pick the exact colors for letters and numbers. And then they retest you six months later to see if the colors are consistent. Because these color impressions that synesthetes get are mostly consistent one's entire life. Barb writes to us about her heightened sense of smell. I find this to be a blessing as well as a curse in a world where society is obsessed with scents and our laundry detergent, soaps, cleaners, and just about every product on the market. This can be crippling for a person like me. People have a tendency to douse themselves with perfumes or deodorants that are so strongly scented that it throws me into a tailspin, extreme headaches, difficulty breathing, and sometimes hives. If you're feeling left out, maybe a bit jealous, hang on. We'll learn how all of us can enhance our senses next. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash NPR. Let's get back to the discussion with this message from Margie, who writes, It wasn't until conversations with my sister and my eldest child that I realized yellow wasn't loud and clanging for them like it was for me. Now I go to art galleries and I find some works of art trigger a sound for me. Most often, it's pleasant, thankfully. The number four is green, seven is orange. Sound is my world. It can be both soothing and an aid in focus or traumatizing. Here's another message we also received. My name is Dawn and I am a super sensor. Um, I have uh, super tasting. Um, I can taste food coloring and my bitter receptors on my tongue are very, very strong. And in the last few years, I've noticed that if I am in a very dark room and my eyes are closed, if I hear certain sounds, I see colors. And I'm very good at picking out very, very many different color variations on the spectrum. So I don't know what that does to help me in life, but uh, it's kind of interesting. Don, thanks for that message. Maureen, how can enhanced senses help you in life? I believe it's nothing short of a survival mechanism, Jen. I think as the world grows more fragile, that we ought to be considering how very strong our senses are. Um, Humans can smell a scent trail like a hound. They can see a single photon of light. They can smell a trillion scents. They can taste a hundred thousand flavors. And we have to ask ourselves, why has nature pushed us to this extreme level of sensitivity? 
I think it's to keep us safe. I think when you when you make that list and, and in reading the book, I thought, well, I can't do that. There's no way I can see something that small or or sense that many or to taste that many different flavors or but how have we gotten so removed from what we're able to do? Yeah, there, there are a lot of myths surrounding the senses, uh, starting with Paul Broca, a neuroanatomist in Vic, the Victorian era, who falsely um, theorized that humans had a small olfactory bulb. And they were really just trying to separate humans from the rest of the animal kingdom. There was an agenda back then, a very puritanical agenda. And it just wasn't true. And I think it spread to the rest of our sensory systems where, you know, we ought to be very sterile and pure and not like a fox in the woods, for example. And uh, the truth of the matter is we're animals and we are super predators among them. We got a text with this question. So how do you know if you have any of these hypersenses? I mean, I don't like coffee, but if my wife makes her coffee and doesn't rinse the spoon before stirring my tea, I know. I can also taste the coffee in many chocolate cakes, but that's as far as my hypersense goes. Specifically, when we talk about super tasters, how how do you know if you're one? Well, there are tests. There are test strips you can order. And... um, um test your tongue. Um, There are also do-it-yourself super taster tests where you punch a hole in a piece of paper with um, a hole puncher, a standard office hole puncher, and then hold that over the taste buds on your tongue and then count how many bumps there are in the circle. And super tasters tend to have twice as many as non-super tasters. Well, Mom, get ready for the next holiday because I'm doing this test on you. I am pretty convinced <laughs> yeah, my mom's a super you, taster. <laughs> I, I believe it. You know, it's I, I so appreciate you talking about this because isn't it odd that we generally don't talk about this? Yeah, I mean, and I, I think some of it has to do with the... The, the vulnerability that can come with disagreeing with yes. someone. So it's like, as you were saying, I don't see that color as red. It's more of maroon to me. Or it's like, I'm pretty sure there's cilantro in this. Oh, there's no cilantro in that. There's this, this sort of instinctive desire not to make a fuss, even though we're having a completely different experience than the people around us. Yes, I I think it's fascinating to talk about. And if we all learn the language, if we're all sensitive, you know, it's interesting how we say someone is sensitive when we're referring to their emotions. But in fact, all of the super sensors I spoke to in the book were exquisitely emotionally sensitive people as well. So I think it goes together. And I think there's, there's room for a lot of conversation and open opening one another's minds about this if we do it in a polite and respectful way with each other. A study from 2016 found that sensors in the retina can detect a single 
photon. As we're thinking about the way we move through the world using our senses, what are the implications of that discovery? That is one of the most important discoveries of the modern age, in my opinion. So even 70 years ago, we knew humans could detect groups of photons, which are the smallest particles of light. But in uh, 2016, scientists at the Rockefeller University here in New York had by then developed a machine that could fire a single photon of light. And to give you an idea of how big a photon is compared to the rod cell, which it interacts with. So our retinas have cones and rods. My eyes are all about the cones because I have extra. But the rods detect light. And a single photon is 100,000 times smaller than the rod cell it interacts with. That's how refined. That's how special. And the gentlemen who were part of this study were not superseers. Tetrachromacy would not help me see this because it's rods, not cones. These gentlemen were average ability um, seers, grad students. One wore contact lenses. The author of the study wears glasses and tested himself. So everyone potentially can see the single photon. The implications of this, Jen, you're so intuitive. That's enormous. That could be a whole new world of physics because what's fomenting now is research into, well, if we could see a single photon, can we see superposition? Can we see entanglement? Will humans confirm long-held theories with their own eyes? Or will it rewrite the books? That Will it rewrite physics books? So short of rewriting physics books, how do we get more connected to our senses? If, if I want to, to hear more acutely, if I want to taste more acutely, what does that take? It takes practice. And it should all be a joy, too. I, I try to uh, show people in the book that the senses are for our enjoyment. So if you listen to Joy Milne, she'll say, smell everything at least twice and it becomes more set in your mind. Scientists told me that if I didn't have the vocabulary, my super color vision might not have worked. So learn vocabulary for things you like. Um, Learn the name of spices you didn't previously recognize, for example. And then there are things like meditating. Meditating um, not only is great, has great health benefits in general, but it also lowers the stress hormones that damage our sensory apparatuses, like the inner ear. And it also helps open sensory pathways. And uh, I found it really amazing and sad that the EPA had a study in the late 80s that showed humans spend, well, Westerners, North Americans and Europeans, 
spend as much as 90% of our lives indoors. Isn't that a crazy number? Mm. I've heard that whales rise more on the ocean than that, than, than the 10% we go outside. So being outdoors, uh, there have been studies in hunter-gatherers that show they can smell more things, they can name more colors. It really helps to be outdoors as much as possible. That's Maureen Seberg. She's the author of Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, The Astonishing New Science of the Census. Maureen, thank you for speaking with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for such good questions, you and your listeners. Today's show was produced by Avery Jessa Chapnick and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the NPR Wine Club. Get the world of wine delivered to your door. When you join the NPR Wine Club, you'll receive the stories behind every bottle and favorite NPR shows and personalities arriving in liquid form, like Weekend Edition Cabernet and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Zinfandel. The NPR Wine Club is a delicious way to support NPR's programming. If you're 21 or older, uncork a special offer at nprwineclub.org podcast.